nursing industry is one of the fastest growing career forces in the world today. There are so many issues in the healthcare field these days relating to nurses that simply are not discussed in the media. Welcome to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with Leanne Meyer. Our program will help you with the most relevant information if you're in the nursing field or are planning to enter the industry. Now, here is your host, Leanne Meyer. Welcome to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, Exploring the World of Nursing. This is Leanne Meyer, and today I uh, I have um, a, a guest that has been on previously, but she's also a special friend. Uh, her name is Miriam Chickering, and she's been on the show, I think, at least two other times, but uh, that was regarding her incredible Nursing International, Nurses International nonprofit, educating nurses to low-resource countries for free online. Uh, just even saying that sentence uh, absolutely amazes me. But as it turned out in the course of doing the two shows previously, we realized that we're living in the same metropolitan area, and so we've had an opportunity to kind of become friends. And one of the things that I discovered was that she recently had an experience with her father, who was desperately ill in another state, far, far away. And um, she had some decisions to make and some uh, experiences to deal with when she got home with family. Um, she, so today she's going to talk about uh, this personal subject uh, which nearly every nurse experiences at some time in our careers, but rarely, if ever, do we discuss it. And I, I have not heard other people discuss that this. And so when I heard what she had been dealing with, I really wanted to have her on and have us be that discussion. So my own situation uh, with dealing with, oh, I I guess I should say the title of this segment is when the patient is a loved one, or especially your loved one. And my situation was that my, both my parents grew up uh, uh, through the depression and uh, through the, the idea that you never uh, want to upset the doctor or the nurses. So you just kind of go along with whatever they say. You try not to ever contradict them. Uh, you certainly don't want to ask for anything. Uh, so when my, both of my parents have been in the hospital and they see me coming, they get really nervous because they know that I'm going to ad- advocate for whatever it is that they need. And they're sure that I'm going to mess up the relationship with their doctor and, and something terrible is going to happen. So um, I was fortunate in that I also have a sister-in-law um, who is a nurse and she has dealt with the last for the last 25 years or so with elderly patients and so had expert uh, information on most things uh, Medicare and just dealing with the ins and outs of moving patients from home to hospital from hospital to nursing homes and all of the things that need to be handled in between and so we've been able to rely heavily on her but every once in a while when she is not available and the attention comes back to me, what I realize is there's many, many unresolved uh, challenges that have happened in, you know, an entire lifetime with a family. And it seems like these are the times when those things come up, and especially when 
family wants to um, put their faith into that person in the family that is a nurse, but at the same time, you know, see you in whatever role you held uh, in the family decades ago. So, um, Miriam, I want to bring you in, and I'd love to have you just uh, explain a little bit about your background. You can throw in about Nurses International, and then um, uh, then we can kind of get into our discussion as we go forward here. So welcome. <laughs> Thank you, Leanne. It's wonderful to be with you again. I, it's always such a joy. And um, yes, it's been wonderful to become friends with you. And you have such a different perspective on things and are great at helping me contextualize um, different uh, processes and I just want to thank you for being there for me when all mm. this stuff happened with my dad that was mm-hmm. wonderful thank you so much you're so very welcome so tell me, tell us about so, your background sure so I'm a bachelor's prepared nurse um, I went to nursing school in Florida at a little Christian college And um, then became a labor and delivery nurse. I specialized about, spent about 10 months on a med surge floor and then specialized pretty quickly. And, you know, I had to learn right away how to advocate for my patients. And that was so key into learning how to advocate for myself. And I think that when we're talking about, well, how do you become the kind of person who can advocate well for family and, and manage the complexities, not only of the healthcare system, but of your family system, mm-hmm. and merging those professional roles and those family roles, um, it's, it's challenging. But we have skills embedded within our profession that prepare us for those complex tasks. And so I kind of wanted to talk a little bit today about how do you become an advocate in the first place and then how do you develop in that role so that eventually you have the maturity to um, advocate for family and complex systems where you have personal um, skin in the game, so to speak. Right. Yeah. That's absolutely true. So start out, talk about maybe your some of your early experiences with, um, were you already a nurse when you started to have to advocate for family? I think my earliest experience that I remember, I was probably three, two or three. So I had very early um, family experience because one of my cousins, and we were in a co-living situation, so we spent most meals together with my little cousin. He Mm -hmm. had been born with a heart defect. And Mm -hmm. when he was still an infant, he had to have heart surgery. During the heart surgery, the anesthesiology equipment just wasn't as as good back then in the early 80s. And he was oxygen deprived for five minutes. And um, they, there was a cover-up, and um, they did not tell the cardiologist. And so they actually resuscitated him, brought in the cardiologist, and did the surgery as planned, if you can believe that. It was wow. so crazy. Um, so anyways, the, my cousin had severe brain injury from that. And... Um, there was a lawsuit which 
um, with a settlement, and um, it was it was very difficult for my family. And then when he was home, he had a feeding tube and uh, many many health issues, and then he eventually died of sepsis when he was six years old. And I remember growing up. I loved him so much, and even though he couldn't um, move on his own very much or uh, talk, he would he could respond, and so he would laugh, and he would I would sing to him, and he would laugh, and I have such vivid memories of him <laughs> being in his special chair, and um, I remember how sad. My, my grandparents and my aunt and uncle and my parents were when he passed. Mm-hmm. And um, also feeling that, that emptiness myself, even at four, um, feeling that sense of loss. And at that thinking also, well, what would it have been like if he had gotten the care that he needed? Right. And asking myself that question, like what if he had gotten what he needed, what, how would my, our lives have been different, his life and my life have been different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but, Leah, don't you also have a very early story of being influenced, like your, your whole life sort of being altered by an experience in healthcare? Yeah, I, I did. And as you were talking, it kind of came back to me. Um, I had also a cousin, and I was probably eight, maybe, when he was born, and um, I just thought, you know, every baby was born healthy, and it was always a happy experience, and that was all I knew, and this baby was a sixth um, child in the family, and he's, I don't remember now anymore what the, it was male presentation or something, and he um, had cerebral palsy, so from anoxia also, mm-hmm. um, so he lived. He had um, uh, severe spasms right from the beginning as a baby, and he had um, seizures, and he would stop breathing at various different times. And and my aunt and uncle lived out on a farm a long way from any place that you know could handle this kind of really emergency kinds of things. But my uh, and basically they sent her, um, him home with my aunt and uncle and said you know basically just love him. He's you know not going to live very long. If he makes it um, to 10 years old, that would be a miracle. And um, he is currently, I have to think about this, probably about 55 now. Um, And my aunt was absolutely not going to give up on this child. Uh, I was so impressed because some part of me felt like, Um, He couldn't talk, he couldn't walk, he couldn't, I mean, there were so many things he couldn't do, and yet there were things that he had a great sense of humor and um, just different little ways you could see his personality coming through. And what I think really amazed me was the love and care that his siblings gave him. And so that was very uh, apparent. The other thing, um, when my aunt died, I did not know before this, but she was one of the pioneer people that was uh, an advocate for this type of children. And so she had, she was among the people that started a mother's group for children that had had anoxia. So here she is in center Minnesota. They lived in a town called Beckon, of all places, that had um, had a little uh, gas station, grocery store thing, uh, a church, and a bar. And that was basically Beckon. 
So here they are out in the country, and even from there, no computers, you know, nothing other than phones to connect and create this organization. And I knew nothing about it until she died, probably in her um, 80s. So um, those are the kinds of things I think that wake you up to some of the realities in life. But I was like you. I have memories of even at two years old um, wanting to make people happy, wanting to, if they seem sad, wanting to cheer them up and make them feel better. So, um, yeah, I don't know if this is genetic and and being a nurse comes at such an early age. You kind of come prepared for it. I'm not sure. So... um, uh, we're let's see. So um, I'd like to go on to some of the other experiences that you've had. Uh, we're coming up against a break. We're a little early, but I think maybe this might be a good time to take a break, and we can get started then when we come back. So this is once a nurse, always a nurse, exploring the world of nursing. I'm talking with my good friend Miriam Chickering, who is the CEO of an organization called Nurses International. Um, check that out, nursesinternational.org. It's a wonderful, wonderful group of loving people. Um, and we are, but we are talking today about when the patient is your loved one. Uh, we'll be back in just a couple minutes. what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. If you like what you're hearing on Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, consider supporting the show. In the one year since the show started, we've increased our listening audience by nearly 7,900% and our goal to reach 50 countries and counting. Whether you are looking to reach a regional, national, or worldwide audience, you'll have a competitive advantage by advertising on Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse. It's the perfect platform. Contact Senior Executive Producer Tacey Trump today at 480-294-6421. That's 480-294-6421. Over 20 million people in America struggle with substance use. This impacts both the people who are using and loved ones who are trying to help. Still, there is hope. Tune in to the Beyond Addiction Show with host Josh King. You'll hear from experts and get the real information you need to understand and assist in change. Change can be hard. It doesn't have to be confusing. Tune in every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. How much health and wellness information have you been exposed to today? Listen to Prescription for Success with Dr. Emil Haldi. Healing and empowerment start from within, but it also takes the best knowledge and advice. That's what you'll find here. Dr. Haldi and his guests will help you make the right life-enhancing decisions for well-being success. Tune in live every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel for Prescription for Success. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You 
are listening to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to leannevoiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse. Welcome back. Uh, Thank you for coming back from the break. Um, This is Leanne Meyer, and this is Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, Exploring the World of Nursing. I'm doing just that today with my good friend, um, uh, Miriam Chickering. And uh, as I was saying before, she is the CEO of Nurses International. But today we're talking about personal aspects. Um, the, The episode title here is When the Patient is Your Loved One. And so we've just been talking a little bit about some of our early experiences that kind of got us into that feeling of compassion and that connection to things that go wrong, but still can be um, good things can come out of it. So um, I know that you had a very strong connection uh, with your grandfather. Do you want to talk about uh, that experience? Yes. My grandfather uh, founded the church that I went to growing up, and my family are big church people, so it was Sunday morning, Sunday school, Mm -hmm. church, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and Mm -hmm. there was a school that I went to that was affiliated with the church, and so Mm -hmm. what that meant was that my grandfather was basically the emperor of my world, and everyone that I knew orbited around him. Mm-hmm. And including me. And I was pretty much the apple of his eye. He would come and pick mm-hmm. me up for breakfast every morning when I was little. And I would spend probably a couple weekends a month um, with him and my grandma. But when I became a teenager, he got prostate cancer. Uh-huh. And I remember the just that feeling of how could this happen to him? Mm-hmm. Um and I think the the saddest part of that experience was he was at a teaching hospital, and without getting his permission, they brought in a large group of um, mm. students to examine him. Right. And I wasn't there. I heard about it later as my, my mom and aunt were actually whispering about it and, and how upsetting that was to my grandfather. Mm-hmm. And I remember hearing them talk about it and just this, like, feeling of, like, a lead ball in my stomach. Like, here was this beautiful man that I loved so much that was also such a, a person of such power in my life and community and mm-hmm. having been really degraded in in that way. Um, it felt like... how. How could it happen? And if it could happen to him, what, what, who would, who would be safe? Um, mm-hmm. So it was really just the sort of tumbling apart of a whole world of if grandpas can't even be safe in the medical mm-hmm. system, who can? Mm-hmm. Um, and he actually stopped some of the treatment because of that, and. We ended up, I ended up going as a pretty young teenager accompanying my grandparents to a clinic in Mexico for some alternative treatment options after that happened. And I 
I saw a lot of things at that clinic, but the good thing about that trip was seeing my grandparents say no to a system that had abused them and look Mm. for um, other options where they had a lot of efficacy and autonomy Mm -hmm. in that. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think that was the most positive part of that trip besides the fact that I got to skip school for a week and go to Mexico with my grandparents. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But that that was really the turning point when all of a sudden... My parents sent me to Mexico with my grandparents to help. Um, And so it was the first time that, as a teenager, I was going to help. I was going to observe what was happening with these doctors and nurses in Mexico and what they were doing. Mm -hmm. And, um, yes, I won't say much more than that, but it was a very interesting experience. Um, I was thinking as you were saying that, for one thing, just to give a visual to um, the audience, uh, when I think of you, I think of Shirley Temple. So you're, what, under five feet uh, tall and curly blonde hair and just um, just an upbeat way of looking at the world, kind of almost no matter what. And uh, to add to that, you would think um, that it would be hard to to know that you have such an incredible intellect, um, uh, emotional um, I- intelligence, um, just in so many ways, so much uh, a deep, deep person. And that's, that's because of difficult things that you've experienced. But um, just to kind of give them a visual, I was thinking in terms of imagining your grandfather, um, you know, in his own community to be a pillar of all of these people's lives and then going away to this big hospital where he becomes the prostate in room whatever. I had uh, yeah. also a friend that, that I didn't know really well, but we had kind of known each other and then had been apart for a while. And then just before she um, got really, really sick again, she came back and sought me out. And I ended up being with her quite a bit uh, while she was in um, intensive care. She, her, Our early experience together, she had uh, uh, ovarian cancer, and she was going to do um, an experimental um, uh, treatment at the University of Minnesota. And, one of the, and she was like, I think the seventh or the eleventh, some ridiculously low number of people that had done this treatment. So they basically were experimenting. They had no idea really how it was all going to work out except that they warned her that it was very possible that um, in 30 plus years or so that the medications they were giving her could very well uh, destroy her lungs. Well, she had two small children at that point. So it's like, okay, um, not do anything and die now with my small children and having no mother to raise them or, you know, take a risk that in 30, 35 years, there's, you know, my lungs are going to be in trouble. And her weight came into it of 30, 35 years, they'll have this all figured out. And so, lo and behold, she raised her family and just about 35 years later was when she started having lung problems and more and more and more by the time she came to me, she only had 20% lung capacity. Um, and so when she, she finally went into a coma, basically, and they moved her into intensive care at the University of Minnesota. And... Um, I went into the room and they have, you know, the board with the name and all the information and stuff. They had her name wrong. 
They had um, some of the specifics, like um, she had three cats that she absolutely adored. And I can't remember what, some pets, I think is all they had said. Um, uh, Just little things like that. And so I was trying to explain to them, you know, who is this person? And they had her in a, um, uh, what do you call it, the coma, induced coma, uh, Mm -hmm. just because just to try and keep her as quiet and, and put as little stress on her body as possible. And um, uh, so these these people did not know her as a person. They knew her as, you know, someone who had 14 IVs going of various different kinds in various different places, someone who was absolutely, completely out. She had um, a, a tube in every single orifice you could possibly put one. And I came in and I started telling every single person who came in who she was. This is a doctor. This is somebody who has done amazing things for her patients, people that adore her. Um, And as I kept saying more and more things about her, it was like she changed from being that patient that was a blob almost for them to being a person that they were really rooting for. And uh, long story short, she did actually get approved for a lung and um, died 12 hours after the approval came through. She fought and fought and fought to be able to get that lung and then died. So, but I think, you know, it was a success for her because she made that high standard she had set for herself. So I'm thinking that was kind of like your grandfather, where this large group of of learning, whether it's nurses or doctors or whoever, who are doing examinations and often, like you said, without necessarily asking, they just pull back the covers and start doing an exam in a very, you know, um, personal part of your your body. I'm leaving you hanging there. Go ahead. Yeah, that's so true. And how do you how do you learn to advocate for your family? And you know, I think um, the next thing that happened for me was finally um, in this next story, I was finally able to do something that was helpful. Mm. And instead of having to sit and just be kind of on the sidelines, or maybe be able to help with the food and mm-hmm. little things like that. But when I was in college, my mom was diagnosed with AML. And she, I, I remember Say my what that is. Me. Not everybody listening might know what she AML is. She had leukemia. Mm-hmm. She had a, a um, specific kind of leukemia. And um, they found out because she thought she was having a panic attack and they took her to the ER and uh, she was extremely, her heart was beating very, very fast, and um, they didn't really know what was wrong, but it was because her leukemia was so advanced. Mm. And they took her to the hospital, and they started her on the wrong protocol, um, the, the wrong uh, chemotherapy protocol. And oh. I... Flew home. I was in Florida, and Mom was in upstate New York, so I flew home mm-hmm. to upstate New York. And I went. To, I remember being at the hospital, and just thinking, if she stays at this hospital, she is not going to survive. This is mm-hmm. not the right place for her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when I went back to Florida, 
I was talking to one of my professors about this, and she said, well, Miriam, if you want your mom to survive, you really need to get her to MD Anderson in Houston. And I just thought, okay, all right, well, I guess I'm going to have to somehow convince my dad to quit his job and sell his house and move to Houston. Oh, my gosh. So... So I called my dad and I said, look, dad, mom is probably going to die unless you get her to a different hospital. And that's what they did. They sold the house, put his job, they moved to Houston. And how long did that take? Like, uh, was it in a matter of weeks or months or? uh, Just a couple of, maybe, maybe a couple of months. And I'm just tearing up thinking about that because, Mm -hmm. you know, so many times we just, we weren't willing to be at the mercy of whatever medical system we happened to be near. And at that Mm -hmm. point, I learned how to advocate for my family and say, no, we're not going to be at this hospital. (laughs) We're going to sell the house and quit the job and move across the country Mm -hmm. where she can get what she needs. And Mm-hmm. She, um, they got her to MD Anderson. She got into remission, and then um, four years later, she had a relapse. The donor was actually—we have never met the donor. Um, they live in New York City, and mm-hmm. this person donated bone marrow to my mother. Wow. And it's been—it's been. It's been um, 15 years, and she's alive and vibrant and caring for our very large family wow. um, because someone gave their bone marrow in New York City. Uh-huh. Yeah, so it, is. it was just this, this beautiful, beautiful thing of, well, we didn't get the right hospital, but we did get the <laughs> marrow donor, so um, yeah. everything seems to work out in the end, but it was... Um, And then my younger sister dropped out of college to stay home and help my mom Mm. do the recovery. And so we sort of dropped into a pattern where I come in for the emergencies and and Mm. finding out, determining the treatment, the the plan of care, and then the family, other families sort of take over from Mm. there. But that's been interesting to watch those dynamics play out inside our family. Mm-hmm. Well, I want you to get to your dad's situation. Um, first of all, it's amazing to me that you could call your dad and say, this is what you need to do, and he would listen to you, because my father would never have listened to me. So um, you, this is fast forward to just a few weeks ago, and um, talk about the situation you were in there. Yes, well, this is just about three weeks ago, I got a call on Monday night and from my mom, and she said, honey, your dad's heart stopped beating at home, and I had to do chest compressions, and EMTs came, and he's in the ER right now, and it doesn't look good. Mm. And, um, you know, that was so hard to hear, and really not knowing what would happen and to think about my mom doing chest compressions at home. Um, later, I would find out that her phone was dead 
and <sighs> she didn't she couldn't open my dad's phone and so she was panicking because she couldn't call for help but Suri actually came up on my dad's phone and she told Suri to call 911 and oh. phone called 911 oh while my, my mom gosh. was doing chest compressions. Wow, and I hadn't so heard that story. That was like, <laughs> oh, it was so, I'm so glad. <laughs> so glad. And I'm like, okay, mom, you're going to have Suri and we're going to get you an Alexa. <laughs> we need to have Google Home. <laughs> and teach you how to we do all that. We can never let this happen. So, but yeah, you, um, so. you had a lot of history with your mom and dad. And so before you really made the decision to go, it was a decision and there was some negotiating you had to do. Can you talk about that? Yes. So when they had intubated my dad and he, they started a cooling protocol, mm-hmm. um, they still didn't know what was wrong. And when I talked to my mom on the phone, I said, well, do they know what caused this? And they, she said, no, they think it was a heart attack, but we really don't know. And um, I said, well, I'd like to come, but if I come, I'm, I'm going to come to help figure out what's wrong. Is that okay? Can I do that? And, and I also, I was very positive and hopeful that he would pull through. And so I also said, and when I come, I want to be able to negotiate with dad's boss and talk to you guys about retirement. Is mm-hmm. that okay? And so it was really important for me to um, get permission and set expectations about what my role would be uh, when I came. And I felt like that would help because we have a really large family, mm-hmm. uh, which is wonderful, but it's great when you're on the same page about who's doing what and I wanted mm-hmm. permission to manage care mm-hmm. came. and so I was really happy when my mom said that I could and then I have some wonderful friends who had some extra miles and they said we can get you a plane ticket immediately and they did and I was in Houston just a few hours after that it was amazing Wow, that, that is amazing, and how quickly it can all happen. Now, if I'm correct, that was the week before Thanksgiving, correct? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> so you had not only all of your own life in, in you know, chaos and, you know, excitement and busyness and all of that, and it's just like it just has to stop, and you move on to the next thing. Um We're up against a break again, so we're going to take a break here. Um, This is Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing. Our subject today is when the patient is your loved one. And I'm talking with um, Miriam Chickering, who is the CEO of NursesInternational.org. And uh, we will be right back. what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. 
If you like what you're hearing on Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, consider supporting the show. In the one year since the show started, we've increased our listening audience by nearly 7,900% and our goal to reach 50 countries and counting. Whether you are looking to reach a regional, national, or worldwide audience, you'll have a competitive advantage by advertising on Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse. It's the perfect platform. Contact Senior Executive Producer Tacey Trump today at 480-294-6421. That's 480-294-6421. Over 20 million people in America struggle with substance use. This impacts both the people who are using and loved ones who are trying to help. Still, there is hope. Tune in to the Beyond Addiction Show with host Josh Keane. You'll hear from experts and get the real information you need to understand and assist in change. Change can be hard. It doesn't have to be confusing. Tune in every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. How much health and wellness information have you been exposed to today? Listen to Prescription for Success with Dr. Emil Haldi. Healing and empowerment start from within, but it also takes the best knowledge and advice. That's what you'll find here. Dr. Haldi and his guests will help you make the right life-enhancing decisions for well-being success. Tune in live every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel for Prescription for Success. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to leannevoiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse. Thank you for coming back again. We are having a, I think, very interesting conversation about those things that happen to us. Uh, I guess I should reintroduce the, the uh, show here, Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, Exploring the World of Nursing. I'm Leanne Meyer, and I'm here speaking with my friend Miriam Chickering, and we're talking about when the patient is your loved one. So um, one of the things that I realize, especially when you are going uh, as a healthcare provider to another area and a new hospital where they don't know you at all and you're coming in with a certain amount of knowledge about this patient about this situation about their history all of those things and your whole family is kind of behind you saying you are the one you are the one that has to make this go well and so sometimes we get so focused on the outcome that we um, or I should say we get so so focused on winning you know, getting our way or having people listen to us, mm-hmm. that we forget that the most important thing is a good outcome. And so I'd like you to talk a little bit about kind of what that's like when you come in and you start looking around and doing your nursing assessment and realize things aren't right. And what am I going to do? 
Yes, that was difficult. Uh, when I went in the room, um, not only was it an ICU room, not only was there a cooling protocol, um, his central line had been displaced when they took him for the cardiac cast. Uh-huh. So he had a grapefruit size. It, it was a very large infiltrated huh. area right on his neck. And oh, of course, wow. he's intubated and mm. he has asthma. <laughs> Mm. I'm just thinking, you know, can, get, can this get worse? So I'm looking at this um, site, and then we're getting results back. He had not had a heart attack. I'm telling my, I'm asking, you know, have they rolled out stroke? Can I look at his lab work, please? They, they, his lactic acid's very high, mm-hmm. potassium a little bit low, but they're not, nothing that's really telling them exactly what has happened. Mm-hmm. And so then I said, well, he had a cardiac workup at his outpatient cardiologist last week. Do you have the result? No, we don't. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, well, how are you going to figure this out if you don't have his chart? Yeah, and then he had, had a, yeah, he had had a bypass at another local hospital in the area in 2016. So then I said, well, do you have his access to his records from 2016 no we don't Mm -hmm. and I at that point I just thought oh my goodness you've got to be kidding me Mm -hmm. because he'd been in the hospital by the time I arrived he'd been in the hospital for about 20 hours and so then I asked the nurse well can you request that information and the nurse said well I have to have an order from the intensivist and I said okay well can you get that order please Mm -hmm. (laughs) um And then what we found out much later was that the cardiology group that he saw as an outpatient was rounding on him as an inpatient. So the cardiologist had access to his records, but the hospital staff did not. And so you have your nurses, your ICU nurses, who aren't able to look at his full chart. Mm -hmm. And I remember one of the ICU nurses was, pretty new and I said you know doctors are great at what they do but nurses are the ones who really have the whole picture of what's going on with the patient Mm -hmm. and sometimes as the nurse you have to take some risks to take really good care of your patient and I trust that you're going to do that with my dad that you're going to get the whole picture can I you know will you do that and uh, and he said yes. And there was another nurse there who was great. And my mom would bring in muffins, and I would ask to look at lab work. <laughs> so I think between my mom, my mom doing the nice things, and and me doing the the serious things, mm-hmm. I think that's helpful too when you have more people, at least two people for the staff to interact with. That was helpful. You know, another thing that was really useful was one of my friends was a a nurse practitioner in the NICU at that hospital. And then Mm -hmm. a girl that I played basketball with in high school was the cardiac educator for the hospital and the clinic. And so I used those relationships and they both said yes please keep us informed and if you need to escalate anything let us know right away we'll come and help you 
And mm-hmm. so when things, the, the few times when it seemed like things maybe weren't going quite right, mm-hmm. um, I did have those people in the hospital who knew me and were able to apply, apply some sideways pressure. However, mm-hmm. even after he'd been there for two days, he was waking up, coming off the, um, no, maybe it'd been probably three or four days. We were mm-hmm. coming up on the weekend and they, he was awake, they'd extubated him, they were talking about sending him home, oh, and um, I know, and I said, no, you're, no way are you going to send him home without, by that time, um, I had pretty much in my head, I felt like I knew what they needed to do for his treatment. Mm-hmm. I said, you're not going to send him home, and they said, yes, we, we may, and so... I went in the hallway and decided that it was time to use some direct pressure. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I did what you do in those situations. And I said, if you send him home and he has an event, this hospital will be facing a lawsuit. Mm-hmm. And then my friend, who was a cardiac educator, she said, well, you know, Miriam, if it were me, I would just call his outpatient cardiologist right away and <sighs> get his regular outpatient cardiologist involved. I'm not saying you should do that, but if it were me, and then she <laughs> walked away. <laughs> and so I called my mom, and I'm like, Mom, you've got to call his outpatient cardiologist immediately. And so they did, and they they did not send him home. And uh, so we had, a, we had a good outcome, but it, it was complex. It wasn't enough uh-huh. to apply, apply direct pressure. We had to apply sideways pressure. Um, it was very interesting. And then during the whole ordeal, when the physicians and the nurses were saying, well, we don't know what the problem is, I decided to start doing some of my own research. And for me, I have a network. Uh-huh. Um, so Connie Jones was on the show, and she works at Medtronic, or has, yeah, has for many, many years taught at Medtronic. And she texted me I think 11 p.m. one night and she's like Uh Miriam I know what's going on with your dad or I I have a good idea of what's happened and she was right like she was right on the money and so the next morning um, I was talking with my aunt who does work she's a nurse researcher and does work with the National Institutes of Health and she's like yeah Miriam that really does sound right so when the, the clinical cardiac physiologist came in the room I was like, I am done with this. You don't know what's happening. <laughs> this is what's happened. And he needs an internal cardiac defibrillator place before we go home. And mm-hmm. the physiologist looks at me. He's like, who are you? <laughs> I said, I'm a nurse. And he's like, oh, of course. <laughs> so they placed an internal cardiac defibrillator before he went home. And he went to church on Sunday. So oh, my goodness. Worked. So he left like on Friday or on Saturday? So they kept him over the weekend and they did the implant on the Monday. So he was there for nine days. Okay. Yeah, it's, it is so um, very much amazing. And we didn't even touch the aspect of, you know, the spiritual aspect of where somebody is at. Um, And especially when it is, um, you know your own family because they also have ideas about um, about that and you know 
what is God's will and what should I be actually, you know, pushing against and uh, some of those kinds of things. And I probably ran into that more with um, other patients, patients I didn't necessarily know who they were, their backgrounds or anything. And I watched the family struggle, um, especially when that loved one uh, was doing something they felt was wrong. This is the wrong choice. This this person is handling um you know, their their possible death in completely the wrong way. Um, I ran into it when my father um, had a very, very ser- serious heart attack. And basically, everybody had given up on him. And they told him that, that there's nothing we can do for you, Mr. Meyer. You just, you know, have too many other issues going on. And we just can't risk doing surgery. The only thing we could do is go in and put in some stents. And you're just too ill to do that. So somewhere along the line, it ended up that um, uh, this, what I was calling the cowboy doctor, uh, came charging into the room in his scrubs, his blue scrubs. And um, we didn't know who he was. Nobody had introduced us. We had no idea where he was coming from, if he even knew who my dad was. And he walked into the room and he said, Mr. Meyer, you are in very bad shape. You are going to die unless we do surgery on you. And I am like, what? (laughs) Just absolutely (laughs) aghast at what this person. So I pulled him out the door and I said, who are you and what are you doing? So when he finally realized that we hadn't been introduced by um, our own doctor, uh, that he was sending this person over. So anyway, what he kept saying is that um, he kept telling us over and over and over again, this is a huge high risk and it's very likely he will not survive the surgery. He must have told us that 40 times. And I finally was like, you have covered your butt. Stop saying that. But um, (laughs) kind of, you know, what was going on in there, I guess, is, uh, that my dad had mixed feelings about what he wanted to do when when this illness all started. He um, he'd had many 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 heart attacks. He'd had lots of different kinds of health problems, but he sort of felt like he was 88 and he was ready to go. And so he was telling the people in our small hospital at home, don't you know don't do anything extraordinary and and some of that. So then as each thing came up, he had an infection. You know, Mr. Meyer, you have an infection. Do you want us to give you an antibiotic? Well, yeah, he thought he'd like to have that. And then, um, uh, you know, it was just one thing after another. And he just kept saying more and more and more. And finally, they said, if you really want to live, you have to go to the big hospital. And so it was soon after that, that we discovered that he had nine separate fatal uh, lung diseases. And uh, he still wanted to, you know, push it back a little bit further. But I just felt like at various different times that he was doing it wrong, that he needed to spend the time to, you know, amend, make amends with, you know, different people in the family and, you know, um, say I love you and all those kinds of things. And that was not my dad. He was a stoic German guy and that was not going to happen. So um, I, it was one of those places where I really had to step back and say, this is his life. This is his situation, and he gets to decide how he's going to manage it, whether I think it's the right thing or not. And that was so, so very hard for me to do. Yes. Well, with my dad, my dad's really young. He's 64. Mm-hmm. And my we have he has 12 young grandchildren from infants mm-hmm. to his oldest grandchild, 15. Uh-huh. And, and he has... Um, a mother and two sisters. And so 
My approach was very different because I told my mom, she was like, well, I don't know what your dad's going to want. And I said, mom, dad doesn't get to decide all of these Mm -hmm. decisions, make all of these decisions. He's not an island. He has Mm -hmm. young families with Mm -hmm. young grandchildren that need him. And, uh, and you guys are so young and no, you're, these decisions are not going to be made just autonomously. You have to include mm-hmm. all of us. But I think if he was 88, it would, I would feel very differently about it. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know if there's some context that comes in, but I do think there is freedom, though, in being able to not to give people their uh, autonomy. I think there's a mm-hmm. lot of freedom in that. And maybe maybe one day I'll be able to handle things like that. Like with my grandmother, who's 90, yeah. I remember having a discussion with her. You know, well, if you don't want to have the antibiotic, Grandma, that's fine, and I'll support your decision, but you need to know what death from sepsis looks like. Yeah. Um, maybe there's a better way to go. <laughs> but with my dad, I'm like, no, because if you die, I'm going to have to, like, take on all these family responsibilities because mm. I'm the oldest mm. child oh, and I'm not ready okay. to do that. So sorry, you don't get that choice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know it's hard to oh. believe, but Miriam, we have actually come to the end of our hour here and um, we need to kind of close this out. If there's, is there anything that in, in a minute that you would like to share that you really want people all over the world, nurses, to know uh, and to, to remember from what you're saying? I think the big takeaway is to just be there for your family, that you can be a family member first. And mm-hmm. if you are coming in as a healthcare professional to provide care and help determine a plan of care, to make sure you set those expectations in advance. Um, that can be extremely helpful. And I think the big thing, too, is to just fight for your family. Like, move and sell mm-hmm. the house if you have to, because your family is really all that you have, and it's definitely worth fighting for. Right. And there's so it's so debilitating for everybody. I My experience always when I go into a hospital and it's my parents that are involved, I feel like the world just goes away and it's this um, unusual uh, crazy kind of dream sort of world where I don't feel like I'm the person I normally would be and I think um, just one of the things you had told me that you did was that you advocated for yourself and that you said um, I don't want to be doing the cooking the cleaning the you know keeping the big family that's all around dad and supporting him I want to be focused on dad and I think sometimes we try to be all and do all for everyone and it's just too much so this is the end of this show on it when the patient is your loved one this is once a nurse always a nurse exploring the world of nursing i'm leanne meyer and i'm just thrilled to have been able to talk with my friend miriam chickering about this subject thank you so much for being here Thank you for listening to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with your host, Leanne Meyer. Be sure to join us again next Monday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a productive and insightful week.